This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, President Biden wound up a rough week with a big win. Will it be enough to end the perception that Democrats can't get anything accomplished? Calling it a monumental step forward, Mr. Biden applauded the passage of one of his signature economic plans, a $1.2 trillion bill to update the nation's infrastructure. They want us to deliver. Democrats, they want us to deliver. Last Tuesday's off-year elections were a symbolic debacle for the party and a harbinger of potential losses in next year's midterms when control of Congress is at stake. And the trends are unmistakable. A Republican wave is underway. I think the one message that came across was get something done. It's time to get something done. Stop, y'all, stop talking. Get something done. But the president's social spending program, Build Back Better, is still the subject of intra-party haggling. Unlike the bipartisan infrastructure bill, Democrats who hold razor-thin margins in Congress will have to go it alone. We'll talk with White House senior advisor Cedric Richmond and Virginia Senator Tim Kaine, just one of several Democrats worried that congressional inaction will sink the party's majority on Capitol Hill. We'll have analysis from John Dickerson and Amy Walter, the editor-in-chief of the Cook Political Report. Plus, we'll hear from former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb about major developments in the fight against COVID-19, as children between five and 11 are finally eligible for vaccines. There is good news on the economic front as we added over half a million new jobs last month, but inflation continues to rise and worker shortages and supply chain disruptions are still affecting our recovery. We'll talk about all that. Plus, we'll get an answer to a question the Commerce Secretary couldn't give us last week. You know, people say to me, will Christmas gifts be delivered? To which I say, call FedEx. And so we did. FedEx CEO Fred Smith will be here. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. On this crisp fall morning in Washington, it finally feels like we're starting to move beyond the pandemic on a number of fronts. But before we begin, we want to note the sobering milestone that the U.S. reached last week. 750,000 Americans dead from COVID-19. Our senior national correspondent, Mark Strassman, reports about the optimism that some are feeling, and it starts with our nation's children. Can you put your hands up in the air and say I'm halfway there? Yay! Halfway there! One shot down, one to go as Pfizer's pediatric vaccine sinks into the arms of kids 5 to 11. Awesome job. I fell 
That rollout boosted a 72-hour good news cycle, an overall overdue sense of breakthrough. This is going to be the end of the pandemic, the moment that we get the kids vaccinated. Surveys show most parents want someone else's kid to go first. But to others, their child gets the shot, they get relief. I've just been so scared, so sorry, I'm a little emotional. I just been, I just wanted them to be safe. More progress, experimental antiviral pills to treat COVID patients. Pfizer and pharmaceutical company Merck have drugs in late stage trials that stop the virus from replicating. Both need FDA approval. But Pfizer says even among high risk patients, its pill reduces by 89% the chance of hospitalization or death. Companies with at least 100 employees face a new mandate. Make sure workers are fully vaccinated or tested regularly. Otherwise, face stiff OSHA fines. Potentially affected, 84 million employees, roughly one-third of whom are believed to be unvaccinated. In a rhapsody of resentment, at least 26 states have sued the Biden administration and a federal appeals court has blocked implementation. We won't stand for it. OSHA has never used its authority like this, and it's absurd. Enforcement could be a problem. OSHA doesn't have an army of inspectors to go from company to company. Instead, it may have to rely on whistleblowers, workers willing to expose their non-compliant employers. For many employers put in a tough spot, here's the positive. Their deadline is January 4th, after the December holidays, when companies like UPS want to add workers. The company is trying to hire 100,000 seasonal employees um, nationwide. Both Amazon and Walmart want to hire 150,000 seasonal workers, target 100,000, FedEx 90,000. That's on top of October's upbeat jobs report released on Friday. More than 500,000 workers joined payrolls. I think economists are pleased with this report. It shows a nice bounce back after somewhat weakened reports in the previous two months. America's unemployment rate down to 4.6%. Rising consumer prices remain worrisome. But for many Americans eager for a pick-me-up, that's a worry for next week. Our Mark Strassman reporting from Atlanta. President Biden's $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill is finally headed to the White House for his signature. It contains $110 billion for repairing roads and bridges across the country, as well as money for public transit and railway systems, and for upgrading the nation's water systems. The bill includes funding to expand internet access and to pay for green energy projects like charging stations for electric cars. We turn now to senior advisor to the president, Cedric Richmond. He joins us from New Orleans. Good morning to you. Good morning and thanks for having me. The president said we could see shovels in the ground in two to three months. Uh, how certain are you you will have shovel-ready projects by the spring? Uh, we're very optimistic, almost certain. Remember, the president oversaw the American Rescue Plan, which uh, we saw after uh, the last great recession under the Obama administration that uh, he oversaw, and it was very effective. He knows what he's doing. This is his plan. Uh, we have administration expertise to get it done, so I'm very confident we can get it done. But this will only really work if you can fix some of the bottlenecks in the global supply chain to get the cement, to get all the workers hired here. I mean, we're seeing uh, a record number of workers quitting their jobs 
companies are saying they can't even find laborers. So how do you deal with the fact that you have all these economic headwinds, including rising consumer prices? Do you, can you unstick those? Well, you put a lot in there. Let's start with the people leaving their jobs. People are leaving jobs, but they're leaving jobs for better jobs. They're not leaving the job market. They are getting better jobs under this Biden economy. And part of what uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill does is it will ease supply chain issues and it will also ease the inflationary pressures, which is why uh, you see so many economists say that it's critical to do this so that we can bring costs down. And as I look at recovery in Louisiana, uh, we have workers out there and we have people that are willing uh, to work. And so we're not going to look at this from a standpoint of why we can't do it. We know that it's important to do. We know that we have the workers out there and we're going to start uh, fixing this nation's crumbling infrastructure. Well, the labor participation rate is still a problem, but your fellow Democrat, Virginia Congressman Abigail Spanberger, warned this week that that the president and his party aren't really being transparent about some of these economic issues. She said, we're not willing to say inflation is a problem. The supply chain's a problem. We don't have enough workers in our workforce. We gloss over that and only like to admit to problems in spaces we dominate. Do you agree? Absolutely not, because I think we're dominating the economy. If you look at the fact that we have added more jobs this year than any president in the history of the United States, if you look at uh, unemployment as 4.6%. The Congressional Budget Office projected getting down to 4.6% in 2023. We did it two years faster. We know that w wages are rising, unemployment is going down. We're creating somewhere around 620,000 jobs a month. And so <clears throat> I just don't agree with that premise whatsoever. And I think the president acknowledged uh, that some prices are going up. Uh, and we're going to we're going to deal with that, which is why this bill was so critical and the Build Back Better bill. So I think the president and his economy is right on track. I think his three prong approach has always been correct. The rescue plan, the infrastructure plan and the human capital plan are all critical to continuing moving this economy in the right direction. But as I mentioned, participation is a problem. Some people cannot go back to the workforce. And that brings us to that question of paid medical and maternity leave. Uh, the president said yesterday, time will tell whether four weeks of paid leave ends up in this broader spending bill that you're talking about. Are you going to go to the mat this time to get senators to keep it in? Well, we put it in. And, and I'd then like you to gave remind all of my uh, I will remind all of my congressional uh, friends that we put all of these things in both. This is the president's agenda. But it and wasn't the in the framework was, that the president the, announced. The, pre the president's commitment was that he would put stuff in the framework that he thought had 50 votes in the Senate. Mm -hmm. And so community college didn't make it. He cares about community colleges. So what's more important is what's in the plan, what's not in the plan. And right now, paid medical leave is in. And you talk about it in an economic framework. We view paid family and paid medical leave as a value proposition because we know what families go through in this country when children and family members get sick. The president knows it personally. I know it personally. The administration knows it personally. We are for paid medical and family leave. And that's why you see the president bringing so many senators down to the White House to make sure that it can stay in in the Senate. But right now it does not have 50 votes in the Senate. 
So it, it sounds like you're saying you will go to the mat for it this time, that you do want it in the we, final bill. No, what I'm saying is we've always gone to the mat for it. I want to ask you about some things when you look at polling right now. Multiple polls have shown that support from key constituent groups for Democrats has receded a bit, particularly black voters. The administration walked away from police reform. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act, as you know, uh, was failed this week. How long do black voters have to wait for the president to deliver for them? Because this seems to be a problem in some of these races we saw this past week, particularly in a state like Virginia. Margaret, and with all due respect, you're just wrong. I mean, uh, let's, let's start here. Congress was unable to come to an agreement on police reform. So you know who acted? The President of the United States and the Department of Justice. The Democrats walked no away from those negotiations. Well, now are you talking Democrats or are you talking about the President? So you ask about the President, let me finish. The President and DOJ banned chokeholds. The President and DOJ limited the restrictions of no-knock warrant. The President made sure that he is acting when Congress cannot. So if you look at voting rights, we doubled the size of the Voting Rights Division in the Department of Justice so that we could challenge these unconstitutional laws in court. Democratic strategist James Carville pointed this week to the loss of suburban voters uh, in a state like Virginia, and he said, what went wrong is the stupid wokeness. He argued Democrats are, are being defined by the progressives. You're not defining your own message, particularly when it comes to issues like the economy. Aren't Republicans using that to their advantage? Well, the Republicans will use anything to their advantage, whether it's true or not. Uh, they're the party of misinformation. Uh, we see it with vaccines. We see it with everything. And what they've been able to do is weaponize things and uh, define it in their own way. The president has been very clear. His budget included $300 million more million for community policing because we know that every community wants to be safe while he's talked about making sure that we have significant police reform. And so we're not defined by uh, all of those things out there, but I think that the real issue is not exactly what James is saying. I think it's the fact that the Republicans will weaponize anything, fact or fiction. Uh, in your home state of Louisiana, a federal appeals court uh, just yesterday temporarily halted the nationwide implementation of the administration's decision to mandate testing or vaccination for private businesses. They cited grave statutory and constitutional, constitutional issues. Are you confident you're on solid legal ground? Absolutely. We're, we're very confident we're on uh, statutory and legal grounds. If you look at EEOC, if you look at DOJ, they both think we are. And remember, the purpose of the OSHA rule is to make sure that we keep employees safe in the workplace. And look, the job of being president is not doing the easy stuff. It's doing what's right. It's having the courage to follow through with it. And this president has done that time and time again. But the, the carnage that is out there, the families that are losing loved ones, it's at an unacceptable rate. Vaccinations is the best way to deal with it. And he has the courage to implement it. Cedric Richmond, thank you for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. And Face the Nation will be back in one minute with Virginia Democratic Senator Tim Kaine, so stay with us. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. 
like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We go now to Senator Tim Kaine, who joins us from Richmond. Good morning to you, Senator. Hey, Margaret. Good to be with you. The president says he is confident that this spending bill, the Build Back Better Act, uh, will pass the House mid-month. But it just got bigger. Paid leave is back in it. Uh, prescription, prescription drug pricing is back in it. Modifications to state and local taxes. So doesn't this reopen another battlefront? Well, I, I, Margaret, I think uh, the president got the infrastructure bill to his desk this week. That's going to do great in Virginia port improvements, broadband improvements, transportation, uh, both doing good things for the economy and hiring people into good jobs. And then the education and workforce bill that I've worked very hard on, it's going to pass. I think congressional Democrats blew the timing. We should have passed these bills in early October. If we had, it would have helped Terry McAuliffe probably win the governor's race. It would have been good for President Biden. Um, but uh, we are going to get these bills done. They're great for every zip code in this country, and I'm really excited to be working on them. But on that issue of paid family leave, does it end up in or out of this bill? It, it wasn't quite clear uh, from the White House. Uh, you did hear Cedric Richmond say there just aren't the votes. Will there be? Well, I, I, would say, I would say Cedric is wise not to completely predict what 50 Democratic senators will do. As you know, <laughs> this bill will get zero Republican votes, just like the American Rescue Plan in March that produced such good benefits for every zip code. No Republicans would support right. it, and this bill won't get Republican votes either. So what will 50 Democrats agree to? I am a strong supporter of paid child and family leave. But remember this, Margaret, everybody who, who cares about paid child and family leave also cares about the child tax credit. They care about affordable child care. They care about pre-kindergarten. Right. And in that bucket of issues that matters to families and children, without being able to predict that everything that everyone wants will be fully funded for as long as we want, that bucket of issues for families and kids is going to be so powerful. I think this will be the biggest pro-child bill that will have been done in the history of this country it will be to children right. what Social Security was to seniors. So I'm confident about that, even if some pieces of it are still being negotiated. Right. Well, those pieces are important since all 50 senators uh, have to be on board with it. But let's talk about the state that you are senator from and used to run as governor. Um, last week, a Republican took it for the first time since 2009. How worried should Democrats be? What are the lessons that they need to learn from what happened in your state? 
Well, well first, it, it was a Republican win, a close win, two points. And I got to give it to the Republicans after being shut out for 12 years in every presidential, federal, and state race. They were hungry. That's what happens when a party loses. They get hungry and then they win a close race. But uh, here's what I think really, really was, was tough. And I mentioned this earlier. I think congressional Dems just blew the timing of the infrastructure and uh, workforce and education bills. Mm -hmm. Bluntly, we blew it. And I'm not talking about progressives or moderates or the House or the Senate. The congressional Democrats have majorities in both houses. And the American public expects us to deliver. We delivered right. big in March, but that was eight months ago. If we had done both of these bills in early October, Terry McAuliffe would have had so much to sell. Relief is coming in terms of lowering childcare costs, pre-kindergarten. There's going to be infrastructure to hire people to fix mm -hmm. our port and our airports and improve our roads. Instead, um, with a narrow majority, a lot of people start to think, let's see, I can hold out for the one thing I most want, or I can hold out to kick out this one thing I don't like. And Democrats blew the timing. And as you know, Margaret, in politics, timing is important. We'll get the bills done, but we're going to get them done weeks after the election. We should have gotten them done weeks before the election. Well, you know, over the summer, the Democratic candidate who you mentioned, Terry McAuliffe, he said part of the problem was that President Biden was just not very popular. Is the president a drag on the party? Well, look, if a president can get two legislative houses of his own party to deliver, the president suddenly becomes pretty popular. And I know the president in the White House has been frustrated with this as well. Here's my prediction, Margaret. You're going to see the infrastructure bill. It's on its way to the president's desk. Yeah. He'll sign it. I hope he does a bipartisan signing ceremony. You're going to see us get this education and workforce bill to his desk. And then what people will be saying about Joe Biden is he had probably the most consequential first year of anybody who's been president in recent times. Last yeah. week, the elections on Tuesday weren't good, but you also had a record job report, vaccines available for children, infrastructure bill going to the president's desk. We think a foundation is being laid to really move us ahead for President Biden and the American people. Again, I'm just, I just regret yeah. that even though Senator Warner and I were telling our colleagues, guys, don't be the dithering and delaying party, be the doer party. Um, folks didn't wake up to it. They're waking up to it now. Well, let's look at the messaging from the Republican candidate who didn't run a single ad against the president, actually. He didn't even talk about Joe Biden. What he did talk about, the things that showed up in our exit polling here, he led on the economy and jobs, led on education, led on taxes. Uh, and in fact, the soon-to-be governor, Mr. Youngkin, performed very well in the suburbs. He did better with white women voters. That message seemed to really work for him. So it, it, how do you beat that playbook? Well, here's, here's what I would say. Virginia is the best state for business in the United States. We have one of the lowest unemployment rates and the uh, one of the highest median incomes in the U.S. under Democratic leadership. So maybe what we need to do is be better at selling our accomplishments. I've certainly said that to the White House. When we get uh, the infrastructure bill and the education workforce bill done, we have to make sure that we implement it right. Joe Biden did that as vice president when we did the recovery package at the beginning of the uh, Obama administration. We've got to implement it right, and then we have to go out and sell our success. And you're right, Glenn Youngkin did 
okay in the suburbs, but some of the suburbs we're talking about, Terry McAuliffe won Loudoun by more than 10 points. Uh, Glenn Youngkin made Loudoun school board kind of a front and center issue. Yeah. We won handily. We won Prince William handily. We won Henrico handily. We won Fairfax overwhelmingly. You're right, there were some jurisdictions where we didn't perform the way we used to, um, but I do attribute that to uh, Democrats in Congress not delivering and Again, the Republicans were hungry. When you lose right. every year, we have an election every year, and when you lose 12 years in a row, well, people want to win. Well, and tell me, more power to them. How do you quickly assess the Trump factor here? Is that what drove rural voter turnout? You had this sort of endorsement you know, from it, afar. It, it's, it's, inter it's an interesting one. I, I think the fact that Youngkin kept Trump out of the state proved smart. Uh, because um, Virginia is a battleground state. It's not a blue state, but Virginia Republicans are no dummies, and they saw Trump coming a mile off. They, he right. was not a Virginia Republican kind of candidate because they viewed him yeah. as kind of an anti-science, know-nothing. So okay. Youngkin's decision to basically keep Trump out of the state yeah. was smart. Senator, um, the Trump I'm, voters still wanted him to win, but uh, Trump was locked on the sidelines. Senator, I got to unfortunately cut you off, but thank you very much for all of your insights. A criminal investigation's underway in Houston after eight people, including two teenagers, were killed in a stampede at a concert Friday night. Hundreds received medical treatment at the event. 25 others were taken to local hospitals. The chaos unfolded at Astroworld, a sold-out music festival where an estimated 50,000 people were in attendance. We'll be right back. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We go now to former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who is also on the board of Pfizer. Uh, good morning to you. Good morning. So, doctor, would you see a partially vaccinated child across the table from their grandparents at Thanksgiving dinner? Is that safe now? I think it's safe now. Look, we have the tools right now to protect that environment. And I don't think there's any reason why people can't get together for the holidays. They need to look at what the local prevalence is, what the risk is in their community. And they need, they need to look at the risk within the setting in which they're gathering. If you have older individuals who are very vulnerable to this virus despite vaccination, or people you know who aren't gonna respond well to the vaccine because they're immunocompromised, they might have other medical conditions, you need to try to protect that environment. But we have the tools to do that. We can use testing. Certainly children who are partially vaccinated have some immunity and they're gonna be more protected in that environment. But I think using testing smartly in those settings can help protect that that setting. 
So there is no vaccine mandate for these elementary school children who just became eligible and, and are getting shots in the arm right now. Um, at, at what point can schools start to lift some of the regulations, things like quarantining after exposure? When do we begin peeling some of that back? I think after we get through this Delta wave, on the back end of this Delta wave, you're going to see prevalence be very low across the country. You look at what's happening in the South right now, where there's seven, eight cases per 100,000 people per day after the Delta wave has swept through that part of the country. They paid a very heavy price for it in terms of high levels of infection. But I think after this Delta wave, this Delta virus moves through different parts of the country, and it's moving through the country right now. In another month to two months, I think we'll be on the back end of this, and prevalence will be very low, and you'll start to see local communities lift those restrictions. Some are already lifting them, but I think the school are probably going to be the last places that we lift some of those restrictions. The uptake on the 5 to 11 vaccine has been very brisk, and I suspect that uptake is going to be better than 12 to 17. There was some um, estimates that uptake would be less than 12 to 17. I think it could be the opposite. Right now, CVS is scheduled to deliver more than 1 million vaccines to kids ages 5 to 11 today. So I think you're going to see broad immunity get put into a child population. Now, there won't be mandates on vaccines for kids for a very long time. I don't see that happening for years. But I do think a lot of parents are going to go out and vaccinate their children, and that's going to improve the situation of safety in schools. And you vaccinated your children, I understand. How do you assess the White House rollout? Um, I think the White House rollout has been outstanding on the 5 to 11. Look how broadly available it is. Within a two-week period, anyone who wants to vaccinate their child will be able to do it, um, ages 5 to 11. Some parents are going to have to wait a week to get an appointment. The appointments got filled up right away. But everyone's going to be able to vaccinate their kids within 7 to 10 days of the availability of this vaccine. And that owes to the work that Pfizer did, the company I'm on the border, but also the administration, making sure that this was broadly available in the community and available in different kinds of sites. It's in pediatricians' offices. Um, communities are holding mass vaccine clinics around schools. It's available in the pharmacies. That's a very difficult logistical feat. And I think the administration learned from some of the past challenges we had rolling out the vaccine and corrected for a lot of the problems we've had in the past. So you said the other day that this is the end of the pandemic as we know it. What did you mean by that? Look, I think that that's right. I think that we're close to the end of the pandemic phase of this virus and we're going to enter a more endemic phase. And as things improve, cases may pick up. Um, you know, that's what happened in the U.K. The U.K., we saw a spike in cases, but it's like it's pretty much back to normal life at pre-pandemic types of levels in the U.K. right now. And cases are starting to decline again. So as the situation improves here in the U.S., people are going to go out more. Cases may pick up. But that doesn't mean that we're entering into another wave of infection. I think we're close to the end of this. This Delta wave is the last major wave of infection. We've always said that two of the events that would demarcate the end of this pandemic was being able to vaccinate our children. We're now able to do that down to age five and also having a widely available or orally accessible drug that could treat coronavirus at home mm -hmm. to prevent people from being hospitalized or dying. And we now have two of those potential pills, one from Pfizer and one from Merck. And there will be more behind that. And parents of small children like me still waiting here. But for the first time in 18 months, vaccinated travelers who are adults and their unvaccinated children will be, enter the, be able to enter the United States. Travel is picking up. Um, will this feed into the Delta wave that you're talking about? 
Yeah, I don't think the travel coming in from outside the U.S. is going to um, feed additional infections or a lot of additional infections. It's really going to change the equation. A lot of the people who are coming into the U.S., first of all, they have to show that they've been vaccinated. A lot of them will make sure that they're not ferrying the infection with them. They're not going to want to get caught in a foreign country um, with the infection. So I suspect a lot of people are going to be cautious about coming into the U.S. with the infection. Um, what, you know, what's going to happen is this Delta virus is going to play out through the country. Uh, there's not much we're going to be able to do at this point to interrupt it. We've seen the South be engulfed with the infection and it's recovered. The virus spread to the Midwest and the mountain states, and now we see levels coming down in those parts of the country, and now it's starting to spread into the Great Lakes region and parts of New England. And what you've seen nationally is a stall in the decline in cases. That's not because we're seeing a pickup necessarily across the country. What's happening is that this Delta infection is moving from less populated areas where it had engulfed those regions with infection um, to more populated areas like Michigan, like Minnesota, like Wisconsin. So it's showing an overall stall mm -hmm. in the decline nationally. This has to play out. Um, the, the reality is this Delta infection is going to capture most people who remain unvaccinated at this point. We've done a phenomenal job vaccinating the adult population. Eight, almost 81 percent of adults over the age of 18 have had at least one dose of vaccine. But for those who aren't getting vaccinated, they're going to get infected with this Delta variant, and that's going to ultimately be the end game. The Biden administration just pushed their deadline to January 4th for this uh, test or vaccinate mandate for private businesses. We've already seen 27 different states file lawsuits in protest of it. You've been warning that there would be political backlash and it would have public health implications. Is this the scenario you envisioned? Well, the public health implications I worry about is that the opposition that's forming to these COVID mandates is going to bleed into opposition to other kinds of vaccine mandates and things that we've long come um, to accept, like mandates on childhood immunizations for school, even mandates on healthcare workers. People are going to start to oppose. They're not going to parse uh, opposition to mandates on this COVID vaccine to mandates to other kinds of vaccines. And you're going to see vaccine uptake generally start to decline. And that's what I worry about. And I think from a public policy standpoint, we need to ask ourselves, what is our goal. Mm -hmm. We vaccinated about 81 percent of adults over the age of 18. Where do we need to get to and what price are we willing to pay in terms of cultural divide, acrimony, challenges, and also the creation right. of things like exemptions. So a lot of businesses right now are creating exemptions as a way out of these mandates, and that creates problems for the future as well. Dr. Gottlieb, always good to get your insights. The strong employment report this week showed companies are creating jobs, but many employers are complaining that they cannot find workers to hire. That is just one of the factors being blamed for some of the supply chain blockage. We go now to FedEx CEO Fred Smith, who joins us from Memphis, Tennessee. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. I want to get to all that in a moment, but I, I want to ask you first about this infrastructure bill that the, is headed to the president's desk. $25 billion on airport runways, $110 billion to highways, investments in rail. You touch a large amount of transportation in this country. Um, what does this bill do for you? Well, it's a, it's a step in the right direction. I haven't seen the details of the bill, but one of the three reasons that we're having the supply chain problems that we're having is the lack of investment in infrastructure and other policy changes that could have made our uh, logistics system more flexible and uh, nimble. So we applaud uh, the Congress and uh, the President for getting this bill passed. Any improvement in the logistics system will inure to the benefit of the American people. Well, last Sunday, we had the Commerce Secretary with us and asked her uh, about these delays in 
the supply chain blockage. She said, call FedEx if you want to know if your Christmas presents are going to arrive on time. So what's the answer to the question? Will they? Yes, I, I think we're ready for this. Um, this year, we're forecasting we will deliver 100 million more shipments in this holiday season than we did in 2019. That's a result of our leaning into e-commerce some years ago, making billions of dollars of investments, including modernizing our airplane fleet to use less energy and emit less CO2. Uh, so the secretary uh, made a wise uh, recommendation there. We're ready, assuming that we can, can get the employees. Mm. Uh, the lack of employees, uh, particularly since uh, last spring and into the summer, uh, partially because of the Delta variant and partially because of the stimulus, which hit right before uh, the Delta variant uh, took hold of a lot of the country, uh, created a lot of employment uh, issues, not just for us. The CFO of Amazon talked about this in depth on the 28th of October in their analyst calls. So uh, to put this in perspective, the week of May the 8th, yeah. uh, we were processing about 50,000 applications a day. Uh, this past week, beginning November the 1st, we're processing 90,000 uh, employment applications and hiring many, many thousands of people to operate in our 60-plus global hubs that allow us to pick up and transport and deliver between any two points on the globe. So that's very encouraging, and it's why I believe that the delivery part of the supply chain, uh, which is uh, very, very important to the e-commerce mm -hmm. recipients, the at-home recipients, will work well this uh, peak season. So you at FedEx don't have your own mandate for employees to go out and get the COVID vaccine. But now, as you know, the administration's rolling one out. Um, do you expect a large number of workers to, to walk out of the job in January? Or is that, um, you know, a misplaced fear? Well, it's not a misplaced fear, but let me commend uh, the administration for moving the federal contractor mandate from December the 8th, which could have put some of the uh, deliveries in, in uh, peril, uh, to January the 4th, and even more importantly, to give us the flexibility to try to get all of our people vaccinated. We strongly support it. I'm vaccinated. We've made every effort. We pay bonuses to people to get vaccinated. But the people that operate the pickup and delivery systems, the warehouses, and the fulfillment and sortation centers that make this country's logistics system go, there's a fair number of them, a large percentage, that simply do not want to be vaccinated. That's not just hearsay. I was in a couple of our facilities just two days ago and had that confirmed by a number of our frontline managers, and it's what we're hearing throughout our system. So this was a wise decision right. to move the mandate. Well, so then what are you going to do when the mandate does take effect? Um, are, are you just going to have to pay fines or is this manageable? Well, that's where I uh, noted the, the federal government is get, giving us the flexibility to do that. Yeah. We'll try any and everything, incentives and, uh, you know, okay. encouragement or what have you. We'll think we'd be able to work through it. 
In terms of rising prices, um, I know jet fuel prices are up like 70 percent uh, in the mm. past year. Crude oil spiking. You look at FedEx, you've had to raise prices in, in the coming year. For people who are looking around and saying my cost of living is going up, do you see any relief on the horizon? Well, we do. Uh, the inflation in the last quarter was about 5.4 percent. Uh, there uh, is too much money. Demand is about 15% higher for goods today than it was in February 2020. And there are supply constraints. Uh, and in the case of, of energy, uh, the demand coming back much more rapidly than people thought it would has raised the prices of energy. But we believe that the inflation will, in the middle of 22, begin to, to drift down a bit. Uh, but the main thing is to unclog the supply chains, which are having problems because of uh, the so-called bullwhip effect, the lack of employment, and our uh, inability to improve our infrastructure over the last 20 years. All three of those have, have uh, had a big effect on the availability of, of moving goods through our system. All right, Fred Smith, uh, thank you for answering the question, and uh, we'll look out for those Christmas presents, as you say, should be arriving on time. <laughs> we'll be back in a moment with some political analysis. Stay with us. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Joining us now for some analysis is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Cook Political Report, Amy Walter, and the one and only... John Dickerson, who our audience knows very well. Good morning to you both. Good, Good to have you here in person. Here. So exciting. Love this. So, you know, I, I love to have the what does it all mean conversation. And you heard Cedric Richmond, you heard Senator Kane, their version of events. Mm -hmm. Amy, are Democrats like just totally overreacting here or is there a real reason to be panicked? There's definitely a reason to be panicked. And some of it is historical. I think it was... Mark Twain, who said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. <laughs> and this pattern we saw in Virginia and New Jersey um, feels very familiar because we've lived through it. We saw it in 2006. We saw it in 2010. We saw it in 2018. The party in power, especially the party in power that has both bodies of Congress, goes into a midterm election or an off-off year election like we saw in Virginia and New Jersey. The president's unpopular. The other side is fired up. And the party in power is not quite as energized and engaged. And you put those three things together and you get what we had in 06, 10, and 18, which is a blowout election for 
the, the other party, the party that's not in the White House. And another historical thing we see is after a loss like this, the losing party engages in this massive effort of diagnosis. <laughs> to solve a problem, you have to diagnose it, then you have to fix it. But everybody's giving a different diagnosis, and there's a huge fight over the diagnosis. They can't even get to the executing the solution because they're still arguing over the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And that's the fix the Democrats are in right now. Well, and Senator Kane said, don't be the dithering and delaying party, be the doer party. Is the local really about the national? Well, yes and no. As, as Amy pointed out, that ugly national picture that is hurting uh, Democrats, as you would expect it to because of history, that ugly national picture is made even uglier when it looks like nothing's happening in Washington. What you heard from Senator Kane or what I heard implicit in everything he was saying was, pass this bill, pass this bill, so we can talk about something on the campaign trail, shift the topic off of other things and talk about what we're doing. So his message was, boy, this week really set us, you know, we got to get going on this legislation. It may not work, but you got to have something. Right. And a legislation, a piece of legislation that's passed is better than having nothing. Right. Amy, um, you know, the exit polls, uh, as we went through with Senator Kane, showed economy, education, taxes, right. the Republican right. candidate, soon to be governor, led on all of those things, on yep. substance. Yep. So did Glenn Youngkin, Youngkin kind of form the platform for the GOP to take back control in 2022 with these midterm races? Well, he certainly showed the roadmap for how a Republican in a blue state, I mean, mm -hmm. let's not forget Virginia, it's not just that Joe Biden carried the state by 10, Obama carried this state in 08 and 12. So this is a, a blue state. Um, he did that by being able to get above Donald Trump. Donald Trump was not a part of this campaign. He was able to keep him at arm's length. He was able to do that, though, in part because, one, it's not a federal race, so it's a little bit easier when it's a local race. But also, the way that he was chosen as the nominee was through a convention process, not a primary. So we didn't get a long, drawn-out primary like we have in so many of these states coming into 2022 where the president is going to insert himself or has already inserted himself. But what Youngkin was able to do was the wind is at his back, and he was able then to focus on the things that he knew would win back those swing voters, right? Education, economy, taxes. Those are classic, not just for the suburbs in and around Washington, but for the rest of the state as well. And just to pick up on what Amy's saying, the reason primary is important is the purchase price to do well in a primary is wrapping your arms around Donald Trump. Mm. And since Youngkin didn't have to do that, he created some of that distance. He also had a second issue that was firing up the Trump base. One of the reasons you have to embrace President Trump is because he's got all those voters. And the key question for any Republican is, will the Trump voter turn out for you if you're not Donald Trump? He didn't have to worry about that because he had critical race theory uh, and other issues surrounding education that would turn out that Trump base. So he had the benefit of the Trump base. And then, as Amy said, those Republicans who were desperate to come home, they left because of Donald Trump. Well, if Youngkin doesn't look like Trump, they're happy to come home for a candidate who's also talking about lots of other very traditional Republican issues. But on that point, education is how it's referred to, right? And, and that has been an issue Republicans have come back to, just of reopening classrooms. Now it's about what's taught in those classrooms. Youngkin really focused in on that. Does critical race theory and everything it's come to symbolize um, become one of those cultural wedge issues? Is it the new defund well, the police, they're, essentially? They're related. There is nothing more sensitive in American life than race. And no worse place to talk about sensitive issues than in a campaign, <laughs> because it's about attack and fuzzying up issues. If you think of after George Floyd was murdered, America had a conversation and an opening up a perspective about how to deal with race. 
it was in corporations, it was in politics, it was in religion, and in the schoolroom, there was a feeling that you had to teach that racism didn't just come with a white hood. Enter now the theory of critical race theory, which is a legal fight over here, but it's brought in in the political context to fuzzy everything up. So you have people who both don't like the idea, uh, who are just straight up racist, and those who don't like to be called a racist because they're questioning the idea of defund the police. Condoleezza Rice said, you know, black students should, be in, should not be empowered by making white students feel less empowered. What somebody would respond is, yes, but we can have a conversation about the contemporary ramifications of historical racism. Mm -hmm. We should be able to, but you can't in a political fight. Yeah, nuance is not great in campaigns. Nuance doesn't happen in campaigns. But so the this question isn't for Democrats. Just in the campaigns. We're seeing this in school board protests. This is sure, really absolutely. Being used to galvanize. Right. And what happened, the challenge for Democrats is the Democrats have to decide this is an important issue to us. But if we fight on it, we're going to be fighting on Republican turf. Mm -hmm. and, and that's bad turf because it comes at the expense of conversations we can have about other things that we want to pass. If they don't talk about critical race theory, though, they're giving up an issue they care a great deal about. Right. And they're going to say, you know, especially for younger voters, younger voters of color who are marching in the streets in 2020 are saying, well, that's it, Democrats. That's all you're going to give to us is we, we came out, we voted for you, and now you're backing off saying, well, we have to be very careful about how we talk about these right. issues. We can't lose our suburban voters. But I don't know if this issue would have gotten the traction it would have gotten without everything else that was going on, which is a national political environment bad for Democrats and students coming back into a classroom that looks and feels different. Anybody who has a child who tried to survive the pandemic <laughs> knows that their kids are struggling, that mm -hmm. teachers are struggling. So when you hear these school board meetings, a lot of it isn't just about, it's not about right. that. It's, yeah. oh my gosh, my child who has special needs was totally left right. out, or my kid has fallen through the cracks, or why weren't teachers there in person we needed to have them there. Why did they cut out sports mm -hmm. and AP classes? Yeah. It's deeper than just that, but it, that motivated the base for it's, sure. It's anger, it's anxiety, yes. it's everything yes. that's going on. That's it for us today, but before we go, we want to thank the nation's veterans for their service to our country and give a special thanks to the veterans working here at CBS News with us. Plus, it's our 67th birthday. That's when Face the Nation premiered on CBS. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were White House Senior Advisor Cedric Richmond, Virginia Democratic Senator Tim Kaine, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, FedEx CEO Fred Smith, and publisher and editor-in-chief of the Cook Political Report, Amy Walter, with CBS News Chief Political Analyst John Dickerson. The executive producer of Face the Nation's Mary Hager. The broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 10.30 a.m., 1 p.m., and 4 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. 
Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. 